Well, good morning, church. Great to see you all. Uh, what was that clap for? That, that, wow. Thank you. Um, welcome back. I'm gone a week. You miss me. I miss you guys, too. Hey, if you're here for the first time or if you're newer to the church and I don't look familiar to you, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. I would love to have the opportunity to meet you. I'll be hanging out right over here, right after the service. If you've got a couple spare minutes, come say hi, and that would be awesome. So uh, I've been saying this for the last uh, few months leading up to this week. Guys, it's kind of a big deal for us, right? In two days, on September 7th, we will take possession of this building as our permanent church home. So along with that, for the next five Sundays, I'm going to be rolling out the future vision of the church. We call this Illuminate 2.0. As we've been saying, God has taken us faster, further than we ever expected, but we believe the best is yet to come. Three words that we use to describe this, bigger, smaller, deeper. When I say bigger, what I'm talking about is expanding our influence, having a greater influence for the kingdom of God throughout the valley. Smaller meaning we want to concentrate on continuing to get people connected in community groups, small groups. That's the, that's the soil that allows your spiritual roots to grow deeper. And ultimately, that's, that's why we're here. That's why God put us on the planet, to fulfill the words of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. We tell people about Jesus, and we mature them in Jesus. Bigger, smaller, deeper. So, in an effort to get the entire church family on the same page, we're asking everybody to get involved in a community group, a five-week, bigger, smaller, deeper community group. We're making it super simple for you guys. We're going to have a, uh, a bunch of groups that meet here on campus on Sunday nights, and we will also provide childcare. So if you're not already connected to a group, make sure you stop by the lobby and talk to the folks out there and they can give you uh, more information. So this morning, it's kind of, it's a little bittersweet because we're gonna bring our study in the book of Acts to a close. It's been amazing, it's been great for me personally. I've been reminded that if you wanna change the world, then you need to tell people about Jesus. And then when your lifestyle backs that up, there's real forcefulness behind that. We have been looking at the life of one of the more remarkable followers of Jesus in all of human history. His name is the Apostle Paul. In fact, the last half of the book focuses on his life. One of the most successful people who's ever lived, right? Uh, even to this day, like right now, there are millions of people all over the world reading his writings. They're found in the sacred texts of Christianity known as the New Testament. He's one of the great church planters of all time. And he's also a man that knew tremendous suffering, hardship, and heartache. He's been walking with Jesus at this point, Acts chapter 25, for 25 years. He was on that Damascus road seeking to kill Christians, and then he becomes one. You see, there are all these things about Christianity that I don't know how, how else to explain them other than to use the word imponderables. In other words, what I mean is there are these things that really cause you to stop and make you think. What is it that sets Christianity apart? It's these stories of transformed lives, and they're so compelling. And that's what we're going to see from Paul again this morning as he shares his testimony 
the words of Jesus have come true in his life when he has this radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Remember, he thought Jesus was a fraud, a fake, a phony. He thought Christians were misguided. He sought to put an end to it all. And then when Jesus appears to him, post-death, it's like, okay, you can't deny this anymore. I did what I said I was gonna do. I am who I said I was. I'm the son of God, sent to save you from yourself because Every person was born into a dysfunctional relationship with God. We've all got, we're all dysfunctional, okay? We're all dysfunctional. That's why the world is so jacked up. In a word, sin. It's our overwhelming tendency to want to take God and just remove him from the throne. Yeah, exactly. The author, creator, sustainer of all life, to take him off the throne. At least we think that's what we're going to do. The Bible says, don't be a fool. God will not be mocked. Don't play him for the fool. You reap what you sow. But that's okay. So what we do is we put ourselves on the throne and we make lousy gods. Every one of us has some kind of predisposition towards some gnarly sin. Okay? Everybody in the room, we've all got it. We've all been twisted up inside. Jesus comes to unwind that. Right, like there's these questions in life. Like, what do you do with the guilt and shame? <laughs> That's why the cross is so powerful. The justice of God and the love of God converge together through the death of Jesus. Jesus takes all your junk upon himself in exchange you get eternal life. This has been the message of Paul the apostle ever since he met Jesus on that road to Damascus. Now, he's at it again. Uh, he's been beat down, he's been beat up, he's in prison, prisoner of Rome. His Jewish brothers have accused him of undermining Judaism, disrespecting the law of Moses, disrespecting the temple. He's been accused of inciting riots. He's been accused of taking Gentiles into places where only Jews were allowed to go. None of this is true. But they put him on trial before this Roman governor named Felix. And Felix is, a, you know, he's a pretty good politician because in reality, he can't find anything that Paul has done wrong. It's like, okay, so the, your Jewish brothers are upset with you because you talk about Jesus? What do I care about that? That's not something I can punish by Roman law. But the mob is angry and they want to be appeased. They want Paul dead. And so in this, uh, really, it's a smooth move. He says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to park Paul in prison, and he's there for two years. Felix is replaced as governor eventually. New governor by the name of Festus comes on the scene. Those that want Paul gone see this new leadership as a new opportunity to have Paul tried again and convicted. So again, Paul appeals his case. This new governor says, I don't see it. I know y'all are upset at that your Jewish brother here, but all he's doing is talking about Jesus, big deal. And then he decides to transfer Paul to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is extraordinarily hostile toward Paul. Ah, that's the epicenter of hatred. So Paul, he appeals to Caesar. He says, listen, I'm, a, I'm actually a Roman citizen. I'm a Jew, but I'm also a Roman citizen. I want my case to be heard before Caesar, and now this has to be honored. Now, this new governor, now he's got a real big problem because Festus can't just send someone up the chain of command, especially up to the court of Caesar, without some kind of official document explaining why he deserves to be seen before Caesar. You don't want to waste Caesar's time. That's not going to be good for you. So now he's like, what am I going to do? What, what, what am I going to write? How am I going to send this guy up the chain of command? He's talking about Jesus. Caesar doesn't care about that. It's not going to take up his time. 
he catches a break because there's this fascinating individual that comes on the scene to congratulate him on his new position as governor. And this guy's name is King Agrippa. He's a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was propped up by the Romans in order to rule over the Jews because he has one foot in the Roman world and one foot in the Jewish world. But this guy happens to be more than what meets the eye because his great-grandfather was the same King Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. His great-grandfather, his great-grandfather was the guy that tried to kill baby Jesus. That was Herod. His grandfather was the guy who killed John the Baptist by having him beheaded. That's his grandfather. His father was Agrippa I, who had the Christian martyr James killed. So now this King Agrippa comes on the scene. He's got this guy Festus as this new governor. He's welcoming him. And Festus decides, I have someone now that can help me because he understands Judaism, but he also understands Christianity, and he's got a foot in the Roman world. This man's family history is one of anti-Christ, anti-Christian. And now Paul appears before him. And Festus says, King Agrippa, listen to what he has to say and help me now. From an outward perspective, this is the worst possible situation for the Apostle Paul. His family lineage, well, they know Christianity, and they sought to put an end to it. It's seemingly a really desperate place for Paul to be. And yet, everything that's happening is like this, completely and totally in God's hands. Last week, Pastor Steve rightly mentioned the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. It's the idea that Nothing escapes his notice. There's never a moment when God says, oh, I didn't see that coming. God never says, now that's a surprise. I didn't plan on that. So if all this is true about God, if God is providential, if he's sovereign, then there's a question that should be asked. God, why don't you prevent bad stuff from happening? <laughs> is that fair? You better be asking that question. That's an honest one. See, there's an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to this guy named Job. And that was kind of his thing. God, what's going on? If you're sovereign and all-knowing and you're all-powerful, then why are you allowing these, why are you allowing these unwanted circumstances in my life? You know what's fascinating? You know, Perhaps of all the Psalms, Psalm 23 is the most popular. And yet you read that and you're like, that's pretty dark. In fact, it literally talks about darkness. 
The psalmist begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. By the way, every single one of us is shepherded by someone. You see, see, the Lord is the one who leads me. Every single person in this room is led by someone, even if that someone is yourself. Then he goes on and he says that God is, the language is really interesting. God is with me as my shepherd when I'm traveling down these valleys. They're so deep that the sun hardly shines. These valleys are so deep that the shadows are just always there. As the sun moves, it's like it's moving here, and I get maybe a a minute of light, and then there's a shadow on the other side. And that shadow is the shadow of death. Yeah, and and my shepherd is with me through that valley. Question, why doesn't the shepherd lead you around that valley? You ever think about that? It doesn't say, hey, my shepherd leads me around these dark places, man. No darkness for me. No, he says, no, I'm, I'm dark. In fact, the darkness is deep. And it's, you know, here's the thing about valleys. Some of them last a really long time. I'm talking years. It's like really hard to see the end of this valley. It's like darkness, darkness, darkness. James adds some wisdom. He says, consider it all joy whenever you encounter various trials, you know that Greek word for various is poikilos, from which we get our English word polka dot. Is that interesting? So in other words, what he's saying is there's all kinds of trials in life, kind of like all these different polka dots. Some are small, some are big, all different shades and varieties. See, your trial might be different than my trial. But let me tell you, it's a trial. And it's a dark valley. And it's long. And I'm still in it. And my shepherd chooses not to lead me around, but he leads me through. And then Paul, he gets it because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as he begins this letter to a very dysfunctional church, He says, praise God, because we are afflicted, brothers and sisters. Yeah, we're we're going through it, but God comforts us. And then what happens is we take that comfort and we give the same comfort to others. And what he's saying is really profound because if you understand this, you really, this is the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian and to suffer. If you can take your sufferings up into God's greater purposes, you can make it through. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because you see there will be something produced in you that wasn't there before. Patience, endurance, all of those things that can only be built in the midst of a valley, the longer, the darker, the greater the opportunity for growth. Because that's how we get to know God. By all accounts, Paul is in a desperate situation. So Festus tells Agrippa all about this prisoner and, and how the former governor Felix like left him with this big problem. So can you just listen to what he has to say and then maybe you can help me with this decision in this letter that I need to write as I send him up the ranks. Chapter 26, verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself, all right? Let's hear your story. 
Then Paul stretched out his hand, made his defense. Very polite. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you, Agrippa, you're familiar with some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about. All the customs, all the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, be patient with me. Now, Agrippa is the one who will bring the most understanding in a position of authority. He gets it. He understands Judaism, Christianity, and the Roman world. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. He's like, listen, my upbringing, since the time I was a kid, my story, my history, it's well known. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our own religion, I was a Pharisee. Now, this, Fer- this group of Pharisees, they were, they were among the religious elite. These were the thinkers of the day. They held a lot of sway over religious life for the Jews. Paul says, I was one of them. I was a Jewish zealot. And now I stand here on trial, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I have this hope in the promise that God made to our forefathers. Notice he's including Agrippa in this, because again, he's a Hellenistic Jew. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. So Agrippa, why is it thought incredible by any of you? Agrippa's there with his sister, his entourage. Picture the scene. These are the wealthy, elite, ruling class. And here's this poor man in chains. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? that God raises the dead. He's beginning to press in on Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, listen. We share the same beliefs. We read the same sacred texts. Our forefathers talked about a Messiah that would be coming. Not only that, but this Messiah would bring hope to our people. This Messiah God has raised from the dead. Why would you put God in a box to think so small that our God couldn't do something like that? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, he literally had official papers in his hand from the higher command to arrest and punish Christians. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. kill them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. Say Jesus is not the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Jesus Christ isn't his last name. It's a title. It means Messiah. Renounce Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe we'll let you live. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I took this thing outside of Jerusalem. I was on the other team, he says. I was doing whatever it takes to win. I thought Jesus was a fraud. I thought Christians were a joke. As I was doing this, listen, as I was doing this, something happened to me. Something so radically changed my life. Well, let me tell you about it. 
In this connection, I was on my way journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. And then at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, and it was brighter than the sun. It shone around me and all that I was traveling with. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard this voice, and it was speaking to me in my own language. Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a sharp stick. When you want the cattle to get going, you kind of give it a little prodding. They don't like it that much. They start to kick back against it. But when they kick against that sharp stick, it makes it even more uncomfortable for them. This is Jesus' way of saying, you're just making life difficult for yourself by persecuting me. And by the way, this is the resurrected Jesus. Paul was actually persecuting his followers. So to persecute the followers of Jesus is to persecute Jesus according to him. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And I'm going to deliver you from your own people. I'm going to deliver you from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. This right here is a whole like, wait a minute, this Jewish man reaching out to the Gentiles with the message of Jesus, the one he's trying to persecute? Yeah. And, and, and look at this. You're going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's so much going on here. But just for this man to understand that God's family is now going to include Gentiles was like, what kind of God is this? I thought I knew who God was, but all my prejudices, all of my hatred, it's all now being melted away with this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Paul says, Agrippa, I was saved to be a witness and to tell people about Jesus. And that's what I'm doing with you now. Therefore, O king, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region, all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. So this is why I'm on trial. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, he says, I have had the help that comes from God. The man or woman of God, doing the will of God, is invincible until God calls him or her home. Let me say that again. You need to know that, Christian. The man or the woman of God doing the will of God is invincible until God calls that person home. This is why Paul says, God's hand has been on me the whole time. Here, just let me show you the scars. Let me just show you the beatdowns that I've already received. I should be dead. They tried to kill me a number of times, but I'm still here. Why? Because God wants me here. So, I stand here testifying both to small and to great. I'm in front of a king, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm just, I'm picking up what the prophets had laid down about a forthcoming Messiah. That's all I'm doing. But the, and they talked about the Christ, the Messiah, how he must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people 
and to the Gentiles. So this is great because he says, hey, look, all I'm doing is I'm taking our sacred texts, Agrippa. You know them too. And I'm like opening them up and I'm reading the prophet Isaiah. Like chapter 53, it talks about how the Messiah, when he comes, he will suffer and he will die for the sins of the people. It's right there in our text. Jesus is that person. That's all I'm doing. I'm just talking about Jesus as the fulfillment of all hundreds of years worth of prophecies that God gave to our people, man. Do you recognize it? It's all, it's Jesus. That's why I'm on trial. I'm not trying to undermine Judaism. I'm not trying to start a riot. I'm on trial because with every breath I have, I speak about Jesus. And people don't like it. Notice, Paul cannot preach the gospel without talking about the resurrection. And he says it's for all people because all people are sinners. We're all dysfunctional. Jesus isn't just for some, he's for everybody, even the Gentiles and the people that we all look down on. See, everybody looks down on somebody. Let me just say that again. Everybody looks down on somebody. And then you come to know Jesus and you realize, oh, wait a minute. We're like all in the same boat because Everybody is at the foot of the cross exposed as a sinner in need of a savior. Playing field is absolutely level. No room for pride or prejudice. We're all dysfunctional. Paul learns that because as he's sharing the message of Jesus with Gentiles, they're responding, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and it's like, whoa, God's family is this big? Now, notice the reaction. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. All of your your education and, and your learning has made you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Never once does Paul say, can you see the emotion inside me? You know, I'm just, I'm so passionate. Now that's true, but that's not what he appeals to. He appeals to two things. He says, I'm speaking truth and I'm using reason. You've heard me say many times, Christianity is not a blind faith. It is a faith that makes sense. Paul always roots his message in the resurrection, in the facts of the resurrection. And watch this. He begins to press in again on Agrippa. He says, for the king, King Agrippa, he knows about this stuff. And to him, I speak boldly. See, Festus, you might have an excuse because you're in the Roman world, but not Agrippa. He understands Judaism. He knows Christianity. Check out his family line. He knows what I'm talking about. He knows the buzz that happened around Jerusalem when on day four, the stone was rolled away and there was no body. Problem, problem. You want to put an end to Christianity? Produce Jesus' dead corpse around the streets of Jerusalem. Christianity is over. But instead, it was like gaslit. Why? Because there was no body. Even the religious leaders had to admit there was no body. And they're like, okay, well, let's just say that someone stole the body. And people are like, yeah, is that going to be believable? The Greek word describing those who guarded the tomb of Jesus is custodia. We get our English word custodian. They were like the Green Berets of their day. They were trained to defend a small plot of land, highly motivated because if they failed, 
they were gonna pay with their own lives. So they had to be paid off. Hey, tell this story that someone kidnapped them, right? What do you mean, kidnapped a dead body? Yeah, let's just go with that. What else are we gonna say? And then the hunt was on to find it. Nobody could. Even Jesus' own early followers, right? They're huddled together in an upper room and they're like, oh, they just killed our leader, what are we gonna do? And then Jesus has to appear. Guys, it's me, chill out. I'm back. And then you have Thomas who gets a bad rap, Thomas the doubter, no, he's Thomas the empiricist. He's Thomas the rational guy, right? He's like, I'm not gonna believe until I see it with my own eyes. Good for you, man, good for you. That's to be commended, man, good, good, good. Jesus appears to Thomas, he says, go ahead, buddy. Have a little poke. Go ahead and touch it. And Thomas, a Jewish man in that moment, falls down and declares to another Jewish man, you are my God. Something happened. This is Paul's whole thing. He's like, don't you listen to what I'm saying? There are these like imponderables you gotta think about. I was trying to kill Christians, then I became one. Don't you think something happened to me? Look at the beatdowns I have suffered. I'm not making this up. It wouldn't be worth it. I don't have any book deals. I don't have like these gorgeous ladies following me around. I don't have any of that stuff, man. This is my life. Think about it. Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about. You've heard about this stuff. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped your notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, now it's on you. Do you believe the prophets? Let's go to Isaiah 53, let's just take a read. I know that you believe. I'm not making it up, says Paul. I'm appealing to the facts. Some of you law students are familiar with the name Simon Greenleaf. He's considered by many to be the father of modern day litigation. Essentially, he wrote the book on it. In 1846, he was appointed as the Dane Chair of Harvard University, professor of law. Uh, he was an atheist. And when he heard the resurrection story, he decided to apply all of his legal expertise to disprove it. So in other words, what he did is he said, okay, let's just, let's just take the evidence surrounding the resurrection and let's, let's act as if we're presenting this in a court of law. Right? Let's put the resurrection on trial. He set out to disprove it, but because of the evidence, Simon Greenleaf became a Christian. And uh, he actually said this in his book about it. Quote, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in, aff in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead, page 29, an examination of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. Festus, maybe you have an excuse. Agrippa, there's no excuse for you. You're gonna be held accountable for what you know. Now, his response is avoidance, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, I wouldn't want you to be wearing the chains that I'm wearing. <laughs> I wouldn't want that for you, but what I would want for you is that you would come to know Jesus as I do, that you would repent, that you would get saved, that we would enjoy eternal life together, Agrippa, in spite of your family history. It's really gnarly, but you know God forgives. God redeems. God wants you. God is for you. Jesus died for you. It's in our sacred texts. Come on now, you're accountable for what you know.
I was thinking about how many might think that Agrippa is almost Christian, but that's kind of like saying he almost has eternal life. And then I began to think about some of you. Some of you have been coming around for a while. Maybe you've been here for the duration of our Acts series, and boy, you understand who Jesus is now, clearly. But there's still some distance. You, you kind of keep in Jesus at arm's length. I know this because I have these conversations with some of you. In the spirit of Paul, let me ask you boldly, what's stopping you now? What good reason could you possibly have for not embracing Jesus? What Paul says to his audience is kind of comical in a way, lighthearted. I wish you were like me. Well, except for these chains. But here's the reality. I'm free. In fact, I'm not really the one on trial here. You are. What are you going to do? Now is the time. This is the place. Agrippa ends the discomfort that he feels, you know, you can sense it. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice, that's his sister, those who are sitting with them. By the way, he has a lot to lose. You know, his sister, who also might be his wife, it's a weird relationship that's going on there. She's really, she's, she's immoral to say the least. He's got Festus, or excuse me, yeah, Festus who's saying, oh, Paul's out of his mind. All this external pressure, all this outward pressure from the world telling him, don't make this decision. And then they had withdrawn, and they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He's talking about Jesus, who cares? And Agrippa said to Festus, you know, he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And you sit there and you think, man, Paul, you made a mistake, buddy. You blew it. You could have been set free. Agrippa would have said, here's what I'd do, man. I'd set the guy free. But you can't now because he appealed to Caesar, so now you gotta find the reason why. You gotta send him up to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen, man. You gotta honor that. It's gonna be bad for you if you don't. Again, outwardly, it seems that Paul made a mistake. If only he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, he'd be set free. No, Paul knew exactly what he was doing. In Acts chapter 23, Jesus said to him, take courage, for as you, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, I'm gonna take you to Rome, the heartbeat of it all. And that's where he's going next literally on Rome's dime, where he will speak before Caesar. And at this time, Caesar is the notorious Nero, who is one of the all-time great killers of Christians. And Paul will bring the gospel to one of the most, if not the most powerful man in the known world at this time. Why? Because Jesus said he would. Notice that in these chapters, there's no converts. <laughs> you know, don't you really want that? Don't you want like everybody to go, you want a group to go, got it, convicted, what do I need to know, Paul, tell me. Doesn't happen. You want it to happen, but it doesn't. What does that tell you? It tells you that it's the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. It's the movement of the spirit that moves the human heart toward the things of Christ. Our job is to be faithful with the message. And Paul was. I was thinking about how all this applies to us corporately, collectively as a church. 
I was thinking about how every church has its own personality. You know what I mean by that? You visit a church, you step in, you kind of get the vibe, the ethos, the DNA, what they're about. I think we're known for our warmth, our friendliness, our hospitality. I think we're known for teaching the scriptures. We're known for um, worship that is God-exalting. We're five years old now, and we're kind of like, you know when you get a puppy and its paws are really big? and it's kind of out of its mind, it's crazy, it's like chewing on stuff and it's knocking things over and it's making a mess and everything. But then eventually the puppy starts to grow into its paws. And eventually you're like, wow, okay, this dog will hunt. Oh, this is a good dog. The dog begins to mature, grow into who it is. I think as a, as a church, we're starting to figure out what our collective personality is now. So here's the challenge for a church like ours. James puts it very directly. Don't just be a, <laughs> don't just be someone who comes and listens to the word being taught. Be a doer. Because you see, if there's a, a disconnect between your listening and your doing, you're actually deceiving yourself. And that takes many forms. You might be thinking, like some of my Catholic friends, I'm checking this off the box. Now God is gonna smile at me. I, I, I attended church, that's great. I made it average church attendee 1.4 times a month. That's about an hour a month now. It's down post-COVID. It used to be about 1.7, 1.8. I wanna encourage you, illuminate. Let's break that trend. Come to church for the next five weeks in, in a row. I dare you. It's time for us to mature into our collective personality as a church. We don't wanna be hearers of the word. The scriptures say, the goal of our instruction is what, church? Love. You put it in action. So here's how we need to end. In the spirit of the Apostle Paul, very boldly, this is the most important part of our time together. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because this is the part where some of you, as the Apostle Paul so articulately said, you're gonna be transferred from darkness to light. Those of you who are part of the church family, pray. You've been coming, you've been listening, you've been blessed. How do people grow? Interaction with the people of God, the spirit of God, and the word of God. You've been exposed to all three of those things. Therefore, now, you are responsible. You say, what do I do? You simply tell God, I recognize that I'm a sinner separated from you. I'm dysfunctional, like everybody else in the room. But I take all of my dysfunction now and I put it on Jesus, who died in my place. He takes my dysfunction. In return, I get eternal life. If that's the decision of your heart, you gotta tell somebody. After the service, you come up, you talk to me, you talk to one of the people that's on this stage, it's important for you to share that with somebody. We would love to celebrate that with you. I always love being able to say, I'm the first one, welcome to the family. For those of us who are already in the game, our prayer moving forward is, God, what do you want to do in me so that you can then work through me? Want to be a faithful witness. Father, it's all because of Jesus and the sacrifice he made on the cross. As always, we want to lift him up. 
You said you're gonna build your church, and that's exactly what you're doing. Father, you do that through broken vessels, but yet carrying the most perfect message. Father, I pray that over the next five weeks, you'd be pressing in on each one of us, Lord, this journey of transformation. Take us to a new place. Lift us up. God, continue to guide us because you are the one who anchors our souls. All for your glory, we pray. And God's people said, amen.